Welcome to the Free to Choose Media Podcast. Dr. Norman Borlaug, 1970 Nobel Peace Prize winner, and Dr. Robert Chandler, founding director emeritus of the International Rice Research Institute, discuss the origins of the International Rice Research Institute and describe how the impetus for the institute began with Borlaug's work with wheat in Mexico. We hope you enjoyed today's episode, and don't forget to subscribe to the Free to Choose Media Podcast. Bob, uh, it's a long way from potato country in northern Maine to the rice fields of uh, Southeast Asia. How did you make these long jumps and what were the stops along the way that led to the great work that you and your colleagues did at the International Rice Research that changed the rice production in much of the world? It's a long story, Norm, but the answer is is this. It began in Mexico when I was there in 1946-47, and I got imbued with with the spirit of international work and what could be done to help the countries that weren't as far ahead as the USA was then and and is today. And (coughs) then when uh, later, when the Rockefeller Foundation expanded into Asia with this program, they asked asked me if I would join them, and uh, I, which I did. And well, I was in the New York office for a while, traveling in Asia. And while there, of course, I got uh, interested in, in rice because rice is the most important, uh, important crop there. But to go back a little bit. That's uh, what I was hoping you would yeah. do to give us a little yeah. feel for how back. you got interested in agricultural science and the steps along the way. Oh, in oh, agricultural science? Well, that goes way back because I was, I was, even though my father was an engineer, I mentioned to you earlier that he had tuberculosis, and so we moved back to the farm, and uh, he did some land surveying there, but we had animals, uh, dairy cows and, uh, and sheep and pigs and so forth, and, and uh, so I was raised on a farm. What part of Maine? And this is well, this little town of New Gloucester, the southern Maine, about 22 miles from Portland, Maine. This is okay. the largest city of 80,000 people in the state. <laughs> and, uh, so that, that was the beginning. And then when I went to college, I went to the University of Maine, majored in, in agriculture and horticulture, actually. And then I was state horticulture for a couple of years, and then I decided to take some graduate study. And I went on and got my PhD degree, taking a minor in soils. And then, well, that, I'll go on with the dominant one to the, my whole life history, but that's how I got started oh, in agriculture. And then okay. I was a, eventually a professor at Cornell, and, and then the, Dean of Agriculture and then a president of the university, and then back into agriculture and the international, with the Rockefeller Foundation, the international agriculture. But uh, to go back to rice, <coughs> which we, uh, we emphasized, it came about by this way. When the Rockefeller Foundation, as you know, had uh, programmed mainly with uh, uh, maize and wheat in Mexico, in Colombia, in Chile, and in India, those, those four countries. And in 1950s, uh, Warren Weaver and George Harrah, George Harrah then moved from Mexico back to New York office, the director for the agricultural sciences. And he and Warren Weaver uh, decided they'd take a look at uh, Asia. And they found that rice was terribly important. There were over two billion people that were depending on rice for their staple food. And they said, we better get into this. And so they came back and wrote a report. And in that report, they said that they had the idea of forming an international rice research institute. 
with support from the various countries that grow rice principally, mainly, mainly Asian countries. And they went from country to country asking if they would be willing to support such an institute. And every leaders in every country said, sure, if you'll have it in our country. Of course, you would only have it in one country. And the others were reluctant or didn't feel confident that they could contribute to one another country. So they came back and kind of gave up the idea uh, of having that, but said, well, we'll strengthen the institutions that are there. And that's when Dick Bradfield and I were out in the field uh, looking for ways to help these agricultural, both universities and experiment stations with more equipment, with training people, with strengthening their libraries, whatever those things the Rockefeller Foundation did. Well, then one day, we, it was on August 18th, 1958, um, Frosty Hill invited George Gerard and me to come over to the Ford Foundation for lunch to talk about cooperation in Pakistan. You see, as, as uh, Haldor Hansen, George Gant was, at that time, yeah. George Gant was the director for, uh, representative for the Ford Foundation in Pakistan. And we had talked about a cooperative pro program at Lyopur. And <clears throat> so he said, next time we get both in New York, let's get together and talk about it. And that was the purpose of that luncheon. But you know, in the process, Frosty Hill said to George Hurrah, you know, George, somebody should do something with rice, the way you people have done with corn and wheat. And George said, well, we're interested in it. And uh, we, but we haven't been able to launch this thing alone. Well, he said, we've got money. We've got similar purposes, and you've got the experience. You've had been abroad in these places. You know how to run it. Let's get together and see what we can do. And uh, so that's, what, that's how the International Rights Research Institute got started. Uh, my wife and I they, were in, in They saw the growing need for more rice with the expanding population. Oh, yes. About, let's see, this was uh, nearly a decade, eight years before the real crisis hit, you know, in the middle 60s. In Asia. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But at that time, yields were stagnant at that yes. time. They just stayed much about the same. And population was increasing, of course. But, uh, but those two people saw the, yeah, they saw the needs and, coming. Uh, so uh, a little bit later, uh, my wife and I happened to be in, in Tokyo. We got this letter from George Rao and said, the interest of the Ford Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, getting together is strengthened. Will you go to the Philippines? and see if they would be interested in having an institute there associated with the, uh, next to the College of Agriculture of the University of the Philippines in Los Banos. And so we, we did that. That was our next stop after Tokyo. And we then found it was great interest, in order somebody else put up the money. And, sure. and uh, so we, we reported that back. And later, Dick Bradfield went over and talked to him, so they selected a piece of land and so forth. And, and so in, 1959, on September 27th, 1959, my wife and I arrived in Manila with our automobile and all our personal in, effects. What date in 59? September 27th, 1 p.m. Uh, well, you, we, we you had it right down well, on your the mental tape. Well, we, uh, we went over on the, on the President Cleveland, you know, and put all our stuff on board. And... Uh, that's, that's when we started. We had an office, just a, hired a little, first we started out of a hotel in, in, uh, in Manila, and then we expanded to a little Manila office. We had to hire architects and all that and plan the whole building and, and uh, the whole plant, and which we did. 
and the, the University of the Philippines and the government of the Philippines gave us uh, some land, about 20 hectares, and we bought 60 more with Ford Foundation money. The, the, actually, what turned out to be was that the Ford Foundation uh, put up the capital funds and the Rockefeller Foundation put up the operating funds at the beginning. They furnished the personnel, they paid our salaries and so forth. And so as we finished building the institute, got our plan, selected architects and all that, why um, then Stelling Workman joined as the, as the associate director and uh, we began interviewing people and so forth. And by when we started our building in, in late uh, 1961, and in February 7th, 1962, we dedicated the Institute with John February of 62. Yeah, right, in a year's time, we had it up and had our initial staff there. So we, we moved pretty fast. And we, we set out, and what, what I think we ought to recognize fully is that the basis for this started out in Mexico. George Herard had that experience. We knew what we wanted to do. You wanted to train young people. You wanted to carry on a, a research program that was practical and uh, settle, settling the, the real issues of the limiting factors on, on, on production and that you needed to have a library and information service and so forth. And those are all things that they put into the, the Rockefeller Foundation program in Mexico became part of these uh, of these institutes. And lots of enthusiasm. Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Dr. Herrar insisted on that, right? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Well... He wanted motivated people. Yeah. And we uh, we tried to do that in picking of people. I, I said, I'm going to pick young people who have a lot of potential, have good training, but little experience. And they'll, in getting their experience and developing their, their uh, uh, professional uh, Opportunities, their professional reputation, that they will also gain the reputation of the institute itself. And so we had a group of young people. I was the oldest man there, and I was 52 when we started in. And, and, uh, and he was uh, always looking for people that he thought would make a career of it, not oh, sure, just sure. come for sure. a job. Well, it is nothing temporary. We, we guaranteed them a career. We had a retirement system and everything else we put in. The Americans were were hired by the, furnished by the Rockefeller Foundation and paid by them, but the rest of the people we paid out of our own funds. But the fortunate thing was that Rockefeller and Ford Foundation gave us unrestricted funds. So we could use anything for core research or we could, core funds, or we could use it for, for salaries or whatever we wanted. Or to scholarships or fellowships. Whatever, scholarships, whatever. Uh, and we needed it for, which is very good. Didn't have much bureaucracy in those days. No, no. It was very, very good. Of course, later we went to many other things. But let's get back at what we did with, with this, with this right. competent staff and so forth. Well, the first thing we did was to travel widely. Our staff, all of us, including me, uh, traveled all over the rice-growing areas of Asia, where 90% of the world's rice is grown. How many of you were traveling together on this? You and... You mean uh, the, how many uh, senior staff did we yeah. have at the beginning? Uh, we had when we that actually I, participated in the survey of the oh well mostly it was about grown. about a half a dozen of us that were involved in that. The, the early people who came, uh, and but Sterling Whitman and I were the two principal ones, and then uh, but Pete Jennings arrived pretty soon, and so so did several several others, and and so they, they we all we sent them out traveling, traveling, traveling to to uh, get the, what are the basic problems? Is it rice blast disease? What are the limiting factors in production? And then with that, we're going to develop our program 
on, on that. When did Hank Beachel join you? Hank Beachel was, we were, the, the Pete Jennings was now ahead of Hank. And Pete told me that Hank was the best rice breeder in America. That's and right. so we, uh, we hired him and he came, he came in 1963, uh, when most of the staff were there in 62. And he came in 63. And he came with a lot of experience out of the oh, USDA yes. at Beaumont, Texas. I missed him there in Beaumont, Texas, where he, was, where he was working at that station earlier than that. And he was uh, not just a breeder, he was a pretty good integrator, right? He, you know, he, he was, was a very practical plant breeder, you know. And, but uh, when later, when we, well, of course, what we, let, let's go back a little bit here. Well, another thing we did was get a world collection what you folks did in Mexico, another inheritance from the Mexican program, we got a world collection of uh, rice varieties. And uh, from that, we, we began selecting certain ones. And what we were looking for was a short, stiff strawed upright leaf variety compared to the tall, droopy leaves, things that fell over when you gave them a little fertilizer. And we found from Taiwan that we had this two, two varieties, Dijo Wujen and Yijotsi, with a short, stiff straw, with a single recessive gene for shortness. We crossed those with the tall varieties that had disease resistance and were adapted to the tropical conditions of, of, uh, of uh, Asia and uh, uh, tropic, uh, tropical and subtropical conditions. And the result was, in a very short time, uh, we had some stiff strawed upright leaf varieties because of the fact that, that tallness is dominant over shortness. And so in the F1 generation, you cross the tall one, the short one, they're all tall. And uh, then in the F2 generation, three quarters are tall and one quarter are short. And so we picked those short ones. And so in, in a matter of three years after we made that initial cross, we had one that we called IR8-288-3, which later became IR8. And, it, and we were able to get, under experimental conditions, <coughs> ideal conditions, we were able to get up to 10 metric tons per hectare when the average yield in the Philippines was 1.2 metric tons at the time we went in there. And that revolutionized the, uh, that started the revolution in, in, in rice. And of course we continued to make crosses and to get better and better varieties, more disease and insect resistance to go along with the plant type and uh, better grain quality from the standpoint of appeal. And you uh, had an order of priorities for each of these. You had to get over one hurdle at a time, right? Yes. Where the major emphasis was yes. given. We were, we were pretty lucky on that first cross, uh, which uh, uh, Pete Jennings made the cross. Hank Beecher selected the IRA out of the, out of the population. And T.T. Uh, Chang, a Chinese uh, a geneticist, uh, brought the variety from Taiwan, told us about it, so we, we learned uh, about that, and so they all played an important part in, in the development of this. From there on we went, and we got as fast as we could, we got these varieties out to other countries. And they, of course, we were able to multiply them and select them, and it took hold very fast. And as I mentioned yesterday, I think, in a conversation that uh, 18 months after we introduced IR8 uh, in, the, in the Philippines, 1960. Uh, 64, 65, 50% uh, uh, of the people there in, in, in Luzon uh, with irrigation were, were growing uh, the short, stiff drought variety. And uh, that's pretty fast. And then, of course, we went on to other ones that were much better than, than that. Uh, but this, in this cause, <coughs> they say today, the Erie people say, that there are 700 million people 
who are being fed today that could not have been fed had we not uh, sure. had this uh, new kind of rice that responded yeah. to fertilizer that uh, that would uh, put their their growth into grain rather than all into straw and sure. leaves. And would it, uh, could you kind of condense the other things that had to be done in order for those high-yielding dwarf varieties of rice, how they could express their personality, in other words, change the potential to real yields, meaning the soil and the cultural practice oh, yes. and all the rest well, of it. Of course, we had, we had a, a, as I mentioned earlier, a complete staff of agronomists and soil scientists and everybody else. <coughs> we had to have not only disease and insect resistance, but we also had to have uh, fertilizer. We had to apply a lot of fertilizer to get the response. But with, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the tall, stiff straw varieties uh, couldn't take more than, oh, 30 kilograms of nitrogen per hectare was maximum without them lodging. Well, we could put up to 120 to 150 kilograms per hectare of nitrogen and still have these plants stand up straight and the response within. They were heavy tillering. And they, they had uh, had lots of lots of productive panicles, uh, tillers that had panicles. Along the way, not immediately, yeah. but at various times, did you encounter those that uh, seemed to misunderstand or distort the use of those varieties by saying that these varieties required had to have fertilizer. Well, the old ones didn't, oh, yes. and uh, this seemed to confuse the whole issue about yeah. investments yeah, in we, fertilizer. We had a lot of lot of trouble with people saying the farmers cannot afford fertilizer. Well, we proved very with our economists and agronomists working together. We proved that uh, that you couldn't afford not to. You you just had to use fertilizer if you're going to make any profit. It's very profitable to use it. But people thought the farmers can't buy fertilizer, and therefore they can't fertilize the varieties. Therefore, they should have the old ones. So, and of course, that the old ones is what caused all the problem. Why the course. yields are stagnant. And but one other thing I want to say is that the farmers, in where, all over South and Southeast Asia, the farmers who grew these sharp varieties never went back to the tall ones. Never under any circumstances, except when you had, had to have deep water rice and all that. And, uh, but with yeah. the with the irrig or normal irrigated rice or rain-fed rice, with that they had buns and and had impounded the water, or they never went back to anything but the, but the short, stiff strawed, high-yielding ones. Well, how did uh, uh, you generate the enthusiasm so <clears throat> rapidly in such a big area. Well, because you had to put all of those pieces together, right? Well, we, what we, of course, we were training people all the time. We had people from all over Asia that were coming in, and we had a rice production course, a practical thing, which they had to do everything from putting the rice exactly. in the ground, germinating the seeds Even first. Even the and, seed beds, no? Yeah, right. And then go on through to the complete, they had to, every phase of growing. From, they even had the get back to the carabao, the water buffalo, and, and plow the land first. We had them do the whole thing. So when they went back, they knew just what the farmer was doing and what he should do. Did you have difficulty get them in the mud with the water buffalo? No, not, uh, not too much because they had tried. You're talking about tried. scientists we, now. What? You're talking about yeah, I'm talking, young scientists. Well, yes, I'm talking about Mabel the extension people and so forth that came in for the rice production. Could be some of the scientists too, some of the more theoretical scientists. but. 
Uh, the, you know, they have a certain amount of pride. And we feel some people would, would step into the patio. They felt ashamed if they stood on the bond and walked them, so they got in too. Yeah, uh, especially if you were there first or some yeah, of your senior yeah, staff. We, we, uh, we, we did everything ourselves, and we were in the field every day. That's what uh, it there takes. Never, never a day I didn't as director. I, I, I always went in the field, and I would carry people around. I knew everything that was going on. It's very important that the top man uh, understand what's going on, not sit back in his office and try to raise money, but you, you get out there and show them that you know what, what is important here, what progress has been made, and what we expect to do in the future, and, and what the problems that still exist are. And we went into everything from weed control to I don't know what, and, and it, uh, I think it turned out to be a very successful operation. Of course it did. How did you come to grips with uh, convincing not in just one, not just in the Philippines, but in the other countries where you worked. The changes in policy of uh, production, availability of inputs, and yeah. so on. Well, well, that's that's another thing that um, we had to we had to talk with. Uh, well, first thing we did in these countries was to go in and get demonstrations going on farms. And, and so that we could show these differences, this, this variety that was this, this tall and falling over and yielding one to two metric tons per hectare versus this short stiff drought run that's running anywhere from three to six metric tons per hectare on farmers' fields. And that was a vivid demonstration. And then we got the people out and, uh, to look at this, the government people. And, Policy makers. And, and uh, it was, <clears throat> for example, when they, they had the All India Coordinated Rice Improvement Project that, that was developed after, after Erie, and um, they were developing varieties. We cooperated very extensively with them. But I went over there and found out that they weren't producing any seed. Nobody was producing any seed. And I said, You've got at least, what, you've got a thousand tons of this variety? They said, I mean, No, no, we've got a, maybe we've got a 50 kilograms of seeds, that's all. And I said, That's terrible. And you've got anything out describing these varieties or where they should be grown and what? No. And we talked to the top government and the commissioners of agriculture, ministers of agriculture and people and so on. You've got to have this. You're going to succeed. And, and they did. We were able but to persuade them. Let me uh, ask a question. Was, uh, were they trying to block it or were they badly informed? Because uh, I want to ask you this question, my impression in the case of wheat, was that uh, very often the senior scientists uh, were afraid of change. Status quo for them was comfortable. They'd reached the top echelons in their service, and there might be additional risks of introducing yeah. new varieties, new fertilizer <clears throat> practices, and the canoe might tip over. Right. And then, on the other hand, you could sort of read in the way they acted that uh, uh, if it succeeded, somebody would ask, why didn't you do that before? Mm. No, Rather no, than no, have you, some, you, you've told some the other institute come in. What you say is true, of course. And uh, what, what we found was that the farmer was much more confident than the, than the extension man or the director of agriculture, whomever you're talking about. But later that all changed. But at the beginning, oh, yes. we're beginning, we had all kinds of doubts. But and, you had those psychological oh, hurdles sure. to very, get over. Very much so, yes. But that, that all straightened out. And I, we said we have new vistas, 
rice production. <laughs> New vistas have opened up, and it's not the same game that it used to be. When you started in, in this program and you saw it unfold, and you saw the tremendous impact, yeah. uh, did you ever imagine when you began that program that you would see in your lifetime this impact? Uh, I, I, first place, I certainly didn't expect it so fast. We were very lucky in getting that single recessive gene for shortness. If we hadn't had that to get those semi-dwarf varieties, uh, we would have been much longer with this, with this program. And, uh, when did you bring those genes in, 59? When, when did we? Into the breeding program. Well, it was right from the very beginning. 58. We, we, in our first collection that we made of varieties, we brought those in. So the, the crosses were made in 1962. The crosses see, with the shot and the tall variety were made in 1962, a whole bunch of them. You see, we, we flubbed around for, from 45 till till 57 before we ever found the dwarf Japanese. Yes, I know. You had a, we you, it took we you struggled longer. and found nothing until we got the Japanese dwarfing yes, genes. I know. You had that nor, that nor in 10 for Japan and wheat, and we had the Dijo Wu Jim, but we got the Dijo Wu in the very first first crosses we made. Yeah. We made 29 crosses at, right at the beginning, and then Dijo Wu Jin and, uh, and Ijotsi were in several of those. We also used Taichung Naked One, a variety which had also had DJ Genesis shortening gene. And, and uh, so we, we were lucky that way. That's, but it's true that we didn't envision, we didn't know how fast it would be. But after I'd been there three years, I told the people back in New York when George Rao would bring us back to give our reports, and you were there too. And I said, I'll eat my shirt if the Philippines is not self-sufficient in rice within three years from now, and they were. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's amazing. Now they've, they've gone back some because the population got in. Uh, yeah. But uh, how about this? Uh, I think that the general public doesn't understand very well the complexities of changes in problems. Let's say that changes in the uh, insects. Yeah and the viruses that mm -hmm. the vector spreads. Yes. Yes, How about true. this? How many yeah. of these kinds of problems did you have to confront well, along the way? Well, there's a whole series of them. The rice tungro virus, for example, we found to have various forms of that. Uh, and then the uh, bacterial blight disease. Uh, we found that the bacteria were changing as we got varieties that were, were <coughs> resistant, but then all of a sudden they wouldn't be resistant anymore because of the organism had changed, not the, not the variety. And, and so we had a, it's a continuous process, same as you have with rust and wheat, so sure. but you had to keep going all the time. Still and one it. other thing that I think uh, both in your rice program and our wheat program, international wheat program, this international testing Mm -hmm. so that you could get the reaction of mm -hmm. the diseases or of the whole collection of breeding materials and varieties. Everywhere in the areas where rice was grown or wheat was grown was like developing, printing a new book mm -hmm. for the young scientists that were going to use that yes, information. We had the International Rice Testing Program around the world in all the countries where rice was an important crop. We had this nursery that we put out, and we have their own varieties in with stuff that we introduced, and let's just compare them, see whether we could improve what they already had, or we find time we find some of that germ pattern was very useful to us back home, sure. so depending on where you were. We brought some stuff from Africa. It's not a major rice-producing area, but it's 
it's important because they import rice and spend a lot of foreign exchange bringing rice in. And there were certain areas where rice was domesticated in West Africa, not a big area like East Africa, yeah. or like East Asia, but yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, it was uh, different kinds of rice. Yes, I don't right. know if that contributed any useful genes to what you were using or not. There's another, uh, the Orisa sativa is the common, yes. common right, but there are about 22 different different species of the genus Orisa. And there's one over in Africa that they did commercialize. Yes. I, I always Africa. remember when we had a Japanese scientist who was on special assignment with us. He, we asked him how he liked this, this, uh, this other rice. He said, Oh, I, I tasted, I felt delicious. <laughs> well, <laughs> so. the, the rice must have, the genus rice, or rice Gen must have Arisa. occurred very early in differentiation of the grass species because you find members of it wild even in Australia and in mm. Africa and mm. much of Asia, around, right? Yeah. The origin of cultivated rice is, is still a little bit in question, but mostly it seems to be somewhere between South China and India. <laughs> and, uh, they, uh, they, 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 they have, it's hard to pin it down, you know, when it goes sure. back so far, but the Chinese were mentioning rice 5,000 years ago, and sure. we're eating it then for sure. It's well, been a very exciting thing to go through this and be able to to make such a revolution in rice. And I, th I'm not, I don't object to the term green revolution myself with rice and wheat. I think that's what, what, in what these, it was. And in these uh, institutes now, the first one of the system was the International Rice Research Institute, which you organized and which you headed until you retired. And uh, now there's uh, 18 of them. There was for many years 14 and yeah, 13, 14, 13 yeah, and yeah, it's right. moved up to 18 now. Yeah, yeah. But uh, also that first institute led to the establishment as a second afterthought in Mexico of the corn and wheat yeah. uh, international became, center. Became cement after the program. And it happened because of a visit of the president of Mexico who was visiting Southeast Asia. Mm. And at the farewell banquet, for those of us from the Rockefeller program saying we were being told goodbye mm -hmm. uh, in 1961, farewell dinner, the president stood to speak uh, as, as a thank you thing. And then he proceeded to tell about his recent visit to Southeast China, or Southeast Asia. And among the places he stopped was the Philippines. Yes. And when he was there, the president insisted that he accompany him to a place of this new Rice Research Institute. And he told us about the director there was an American by the name of Chandler. And there was tremendous activity and beautiful laboratories, but everybody working out in the paddy plots also. And he said, it's, I didn't know until I was leaving that the director said, you know, the first seeds of these kinds of programs were sown in Mexico. And I, meaning you, Bob Chandler, yeah. was there. Yeah. And Lopez, President Lopez Mateo said, that being the case, I insist 
even though we're saying goodbye tonight, uh, that we find some <coughs> way so that an international institute of that caliber uh, or something approaching it can be established here in Mexico on wheat and maize, where we have demonstrated that a lot of impact has been made so that we, the people of Mexico, can invite young scientists from other countries to come and train here at this international institute that will come to be, I hope, and in so doing, repay for some of the benefits that we have received from the Rockefeller Foundation Mexican government program that we're saying goodbye yeah. to tonight. I remember President Mateo Lopez, Lopez Mateo's visit very, very well. And uh, uh, I didn't realize, I didn't quite know what you just told. I didn't realize he carried it back quite that well. And he said it at and the and farewell let you, dinner. Let me tell you a funny story that <laughs> happened at that when he was here. He had an entourage with him, oh, yes. several oh. people. And I was sitting by one of their ministers at luncheon, we had a luncheon for him, of course, that day, and and uh, I was speaking to him in Spanish, in my poor Spanish, because I didn't know how. But so I finally I said to him, uh, uh, thinking me, maybe he spoke better English than I did Spanish. So I said, "Probably with that English." He said, "A little," and and I said, uh, oh, "When?" So to make conversation, I said, "When did you leave Mexico?" Oh, I leave there all my life. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So, so I went back to Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, it's curious how all of these things unfolded, Bob, and you and I were among the pioneers that had this wonderful experience. Yeah. Caring one step farther about how that uh, comment of Lopez Mateos mm. uh, in the farewell dinner, he said, I insist we find a way, and the Mexican government will do its part to make this happen. It was four years before the papers were signed, and I have a picture that I, yeah. that I value very mm -hmm. highly, mm -hmm. where Dr., the late Dr. George Herrar uh, and President Adolfo Lopez Mateos yeah. are signing the paper for the establishment of, of Simon, the, of Simon yeah. which was 19... 64, yeah. but it was three years it was before six, 66 we actually, before you became a, a real entity in the international Meanwhile, sense. we were in a no man's land called the Intercrop, yeah. Inter-American Crop Program, mm. sponsored by the Rockefeller Foundation, and my work was a bootleg operation in moving the weeds mm. from mm. Mexico to India and Pakistan. Not bootleg in the sense that it mm. was camouflaged, but the funds were taken from this uh, Funny little program, Inter-American <clears throat> Crop. You know, program. if you, you look at my book, An Adventure in Applied Science with the History yes, of the I've National Righteous Act, there's a picture of President uh, Lopez Mateos. Yes. Right on there. They're greeting him in the front of the administration building, which right. is now at Chandler Hall out there. And I, uh, I always remember that. Because he was one of our very early visitors. You see, we were just really getting going when he was there. Bob. We've seen these wonderful changes mm. in yield and production mm. of, we've been talking mostly about rice mm. and mm. wheat, but in maize and several other crops as well, mm. uh, that has contributed, as you just pointed out, to so many hundreds of millions of people mm. uh, being fed mm. rather than dying of starvation. But as we look down the road, 
with the population as mm. it is now. And the growth uh, of population monster, mm. as I call it, that uh, continues to relentlessly advance. Yeah. What's the future of agriculture, or for that matter, of civilization? I, I, I'm really not as optimistic as I'd like to be about, about the future. For, for the reason that we have a finite planet with no, no land increases, and yet we have an increasing population. And the world population is still going ahead at about 1.7 to 1.8 percent per year. And for the average, 2.8 percent in Africa, and uh, over 2 percent in Latin America. And I think we're going to be in bad shape now, which is true that we had a 115 percent increase in, in rice production in the period from 1970s and 1985 or so along in there. But uh, uh, that can't go on forever. And that was mostly by increased yield on the land. Last, lastly, said only 14% only for Asia as a whole, <laughs> only 14% was due to land increase. And that happened in the early days. Land so the area. The area, area increase. The rest of it was, was productivity, uh, that yield per unit area of land. Right. And uh, I, I just feel that we're going to be in, in really bad shape with time. It so happens that the monsoons in Asia, which are, support a lot of the upland rice and, and rain-fed rice, uh, that they've been right, pretty good during recent years. And so we haven't had any crisis to remind people of it. But the per capita production of rice peaked in Latin America in 1981 and Asia in 1984, in those two continents. And, it, and it's been going down ever since because population now is going ahead faster than rice production. You see, you have a lot of diminishing returns in this thing, and, they, and this curve is flattening out. You can't keep on getting higher yield and higher yield in, in the quantities and the amounts that you had in those early days. You made your big jump. Now it's a much more difficult thing to add to what you've had. In other words, if you've got potential yields that you can demonstrate yeah, in yeah. small plots of yeah. 11 tons or whatever <laughs> it is, to gain another 100 kilos or a yeah, tenth of a yeah. ton is a tremendous struggle, yeah. right? Yeah, that's uh, right. And it becomes more and more difficult as <clears throat> yields go up. I made a, uh, an agriculture economist, uh, Randy Barker and some of these people who were at Erie, have estimated that in 1990, we need 570 million metric tons of rice to take care of, of, of Asia. And I went through a little exercise of estimating what I thought they could do in 1900, in the year 2000, in the year 2000, year 2000 I mean. And in the year 2000, I figured that we'd be 50 million metric tons shy of the estimate that we need to feed the people. So they're going to have to import it from somewhere else. Do you get the nasty comment, uh, I say nasty from the standpoint of nonsensical and difficult to, uh, it's kind of infuriating too, that say, oh, you've proven that uh, Malthus was wrong in his <laughs> concept. Is that, do you get that pitched at you? Oh, yes, of course. Mal Malthus how do you, he was, ahead you of his, he was ahead of his time, that's so <laughs> all. It's eventually going to catch up. But he didn't realize what was going to happen in America. Okay. And, 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 and uh, with and, new technology. And new technology in, in Europe and like, so forth. And, and like your yeah, rice. And still going, still going on. But, um, but he's, eventually he's going to be right. Well, uh, do you believe all of this uh, that we hear now 
not too many of scientists are saying it, but a few. Oh, but the new biotechnology and the new yeah. molecular genetics is going to give us a new huge surge in production. In, in, my, in my opinion on, uh, on molecular genetic engineering or whatever you want to call it, uh, new technology, I think that uh, we probably are going to stabilize yields much better. We're going to get uh, more resistance to insect and disease attack and adverse soil conditions. But that's uh, not be the, be the big thing. But I don't think you're going to get a great big jump again. That, that doesn't have anything to do with yield potential per se. It's got to do with sec security or safety. It increase the yield potential. It only maintains some of the gains that you've already made. And reduces yeah, crop losses. Reduces crop losses, that's correct. Yes. And uh, there's a lot of confusion, it seems yeah. to me, in the public's mind at the mm -hmm. present time mm -hmm. because a few uh, very articulate scientists who believe, of course, in this, and they should have faith in their own research, mm -hmm. but sort of blow it out of proportion. Maybe they do not, mm -hmm. but the way it comes out in the general press, mm -hmm. uh, they look through the eye of the needle of that specialty mm -hmm. and they think it's going to revolutionize mm -hmm. again. Uh, rice production, corn production, mm. wheat production, and the tuber crops, all of this. And what you're saying, if I understood you correctly, is that don't look for these big jumps in yield potential. In no. safety of harvest, yes, because these are it's singular. It's pretty much been done, and uh, we just a steady, some steady improvement, of course, and stability in yields. Yeah. Well, think what what do we do then about this population monster? Uh, to me, that is, uh, as I've said in a number of my writings in recent years, I said, I think the greatest threat to the well-being of mankind in the years ahead is, is the increasing rate of population growth. I think that we're, I just don't understand how people feel that we can have a world that's fit to live in and have uh, 14, 15 billion people on the surface of this earth. It just can't be done. And you're going to have some very serious problems of, of health and well-being of people before you get to that stage. Uh, if we could stop at 10 million, 10 billion, I think we might be able to do it with a, a tremendous effort, an effort that, uh, that has only been made in wartime as far as money is concerned and so forth. It's just going to be a major effort to do that. And if you're talking about at the, the, you know, the UN the United Nations Population Council goes from the, the best scenario to the middle one to the worst. And the worst one's up 15, 16 billion people. And it could and, well happen. And that could happen, and that would be awful. I think it would be an awful world in which to live at that time. The thing, for example, people don't like to listen to these things. No. They're fearsome, they're frightening. Mm -hmm. But, for example, 23 years ago, when when I received the Nobel Peace Prize at the, yeah. uh, at the ceremonies, I said, we have won a battle in the so-called Green Revolution yeah. in the wheat and with the rice and the maize. Uh, but it's a battle, it's not the war. And this will give us a little breathing time. Mm. That's what Three or four decades, mm. we've spent 23 years and we're still losing ground fast. Yes, and you're gonna lose it faster in the future than you have in the past. Uh, this is really going to be, I think it's going to be very, 
very difficult. Well, Norm, we've had a good conversation. And, it brings uh, back have, lots and, of happy uh, memories, uh, yeah, right? Right. And uh, I, I hope we can get together again sometime and see we've, how one. I wish I could live another 20 years. Of course, I can't. Because uh, I'd be 106 years old in 20 years. But uh, uh, nevertheless, I'd like to see what's going to happen with my own eye. It'd be very nice if we could. And, I would uh, like to. Uh, turn back the clock even farther so that I could try to do some of the same things better, eliminating all yeah. the mistakes well, I made the along the way. Now. We could do a better job if we start right. over again. Sure we could. <laughs> Want more episodes like this? Don't forget to subscribe and get updates each week for the Free to Choose Media Podcast.